There's a big trade show in Vegas and I go to visit Michael Rubin at his hotel. There was lots of people in various states of clothing. Michael and I just sat on the couch with this all going on around us and had a business meeting. <laughs> Every possible distraction you can imagine. And he and I are on the couch and he's like, what are unit economics? Uh, and I'm just like, how is he able to focus in this environment? Like it was the hardest business meeting I've ever taken. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Scott Wingo is the founder and CEO of Spiffy, a nationwide on-demand car care solution. Think car washes, oil changes, and much more all in your driveway. In this conversation, we discussed how Spiffy makes money, doing business deals while partying in Vegas with the legendary Michael Rubin, tricks to hiring over 600 technicians nationwide, leveraging AI for unsexy auto repair, and why electric vehicle repair is actually much more profitable. Scott and his team are doing unique things in an unsexy industry, and I think you'll love this conversation. All right, let's get into it. All right, we got Scott Wingo on the CDG podcast. Scott, welcome. Hey, uh, I don't know what to call you, Mr. Guy or uh, the guy or CDG, CDG. Yeah, whatever you like. Uh, it's great to meet you. People can flame you with uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport, so that's that's <laughs> what I get all the time. They're trying to go to uh, France, they end up visiting you. Yeah, I tell them that's my uncle, so some people actually believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what's with the penguin, man? I, listen, I want to just, first thing is I love it. You have a super memorable brand, and for a private company, you, I mean, you haven't been around for that many years. I, it's something that I, I just really like it. I don't know, it makes me feel good. So tell me about the penguin, where'd that come from? Good, it's supposed to make you feel, it's working. Um, <laughs> so it's a little bit of a long story. So I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur and this is my fourth business. My first business was called Stingray Software and it had nothing to do with Stingrays, but we just kind of, we wanted a beach theme. Um, and uh, no one ever forgot the name of the company. And then I started one called Auction Rover that had a dog logo. Uh, and then my third company was called Channel Advisor and no one ever remembers Channel Advisor. Um, so I said, that was a branding mistake to take two generic kind of words and put them together. So we came up with the word spiffy and found the trademark was available and all that kind of stuff. And the URL that we, uh, it's get spiffy, G-E-T-S-P-I-F-F-Y. And I, I said, we had these credits. We were at a, um, an accelerator like program and we had some credits with an ad agency and we're like, what do we use these $5,000 of credits for? I said, well, let's get them Make to a work logo. on a logo. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we were just gonna have the word and I said, do some animal logos. And then they showed a penguin and I was like, Full stop. That's that's perfect. Like I, I wish I had come up with it, um, but I'm more of a software type guy, so I'm creative in other ways, uh, not with graphics. And yeah, and then we we basically um, we gave him a little bow tie and we gave him a little towel to be kind of like you know kind of a concierge kind of a vibe. Uh, and then yeah, so people love the penguin, and I underestimated the power of having giant blue vans with giant penguins on. I don't know if you've ever seen a van or not, but uh, they stick out. Yeah, the penguin is great. I got to say, like, I think a lot of companies, startups, dealers, whatever, any company could really learn from this because it just creates this feeling. I, again, I, I can't explain this. You know, if you're listening, you should Google Spiffy right now just to see the logo. Uh, it definitely creates a good feeling and I love it. But I want to just take a quick step back to you mentioned launching Spiffy, your fourth company. You know, I did, I looked up your background, I did some research, you know, what you've done. And you just mentioned some companies you've launched, you're a serial entrepreneur. It seems to me like you're a technologist first. Right. And you are arguably the most unsexy non-technology 
business that I can think of auto repair. How did this even happen? Like, and what when your brain as a technologist was said, okay, yeah, let me try to enter this space. I think I'll do well at it. Yeah, the uh, so it all goes back to my the company I mentioned, Channel Advisor, and what Channel Advisor does is helps brands and retailers sell on eBay and Amazon. So uh, started that company. I kind of stumbled into that. Uh, the company before was an auction search engine. So I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, those that can see, I've got Star Wars stuff all in my office here. And when the e-commerce was born, there was more auction sites than fixed price sites. So I built a company to search auction sites called Auction River. And as part of that, we also built tools for selling on different sites on the internet. That company got acquired, then the dot-com bubble imploded, and there was only one auction site left called eBay that we know did know and love today. So then we started really working on these selling tools, and then that turned into a whole company called Channel Advisor. Let me, let me ask you a quick question there before, sure. before we move on. Is that similar to, like, I know Michael Rubin had some company um, mm -hmm. in the early 2000s that sold to GSI. eBay, I want to say. Yes, yeah, GSI, yeah. that's the one. Is that something similar to that? It is. Uh, actually, I actually have a lot of Michael Rubin stories. We'll save that for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we'll, save it, we'll save it for this one, right, after okay. party for this one. <laughs> so GSI was our biggest customer. So GSI did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, so they would go to all the sports brands and get them to sell online and outsource that to them. Uh -huh. Then they would use our software to sell on eBay and Amazon. Um, even today, uh, the underlying brands that, that GSI powered still use Advisor. So they were one of our bigger customers. I, I think I think you owe the audience a, a Mike Rubin story right now. A quick one, a quick one. We just have to kind of inject it. We're already talking about GSI. So we were in Vegas. There's a big trade show in Vegas. And I go to visit Michael Rubin at his hotel. And let's say there was still a party going on at like seven in the morning. And there was lots of people in various states of clothing. And Michael and I just sat on the couch with this all going on around us and had a business meeting. <laughs> and it was like, uh, you know, so there's, Every possible distraction you can imagine. There's a pool there and <laughs> everything. And he and I are on the couch. Uh, also, he has a TV blaring a sports uh, thing. And he's like, what are unit economics? Uh, tell me how this, you know, hey, we do have really. And I'm just like, how, how is he able to focus in this environment? Like it was the hardest business meeting I've ever taken. But you could tell it was just like how he operates. Like he was just like, yeah, I'm just going to plop down here and have a business meeting. <laughs> yeah. And now he's a billionaire. I think you bring up a good point, which is that at the end of the day, business is about people. And it's yeah. about partnerships and having real genuine relationships and just getting shit done. And so I think, I don't know him personally, but I think that's sort of the, the ethos that resonates from him, at least what I see from the outside. Everyone puts out their own image that they want to put on Instagram and whatnot, but it seems like that's his nature. And I, and, and I like that. I think it's very real and it feels very authentic to him. So. Yeah. I know Jeff Jordan really well. He's at Andreessen Horowitz now, but he was at, he was CEO of eBay and he described Mike Rubin in, as having like three gears above anyone else he's ever met. And, and uh, you and I grind hard. Uh, Rubin's in like some whole other game. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So uh, back to our story. So uh, Channel Advisor started that in 2001, raised 90 million venture capital, and then went public in 2013. So that has been one of my lifelong dreams as an entrepreneur is to take a company public. So that, that was, that was uh, exciting to check that off the bucket list. And you, what, you took it public as a CEO? Yeah. Yeah. New York Stock Exchange. I got to ring the bell. I'm a CNBC junkie. So I got to hang out with Jim Cramer a bunch and stuff like that. It was really fun. And then around that time, I had my first Uber experience. And the way that hit me as an e-commerce entrepreneur was, uh, and I'm a uh, full disclosure, I'm a super Amazon nerd. So I've studied Amazon for 20 years. Love, love everything Amazon's doing. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and they were our number one partner at Channel Advisor. So I had a front row seat to watching Amazon build 
you know, I built like a $600 million business. They built a trillion dollar business uh, in that same time frame. So I was able to see that and see kind of like what that tier of, of business creation looked like. So I had my first Uber experience and the way that hit me was I said, all right, we've seen products go digital in the form of e-commerce. And if you look at GDP, 5 trillion is consumer goods, 10 trillion is consumer services. So then I thought services are going to go digital. And if that happens, it's twice the size of e-commerce. It's going to happen faster than e-commerce because e-commerce has taken all this time largely to get people online. You know, e-commerce was, was, had the headwind of there just weren't enough people online. And then we had to get digital payments and smartphones. We have all that. So then I was thinking that's going to be like the biggest platform opportunity probably of my life. And I'm uniquely situated to take advantage of it because I've been, you know, working in e-commerce for 20 years. So then I was thinking, well, what's, what could I do? Um, and then, you know, obviously there was Uber for everything. And previously I had bought a car wash in 2003, partner of mine. Great business. I, it is. Yeah. And I figured, and you can mock me for this. I figured if I'm way out here on the risk spectrum with my startups, I need something in the real world that generates cash. Now, the number one question people ask is, uh, do I make meth at the car wash? Uh, because if you've watched Breaking Bad, that's how they launder cash. No, I am not involved in the sale of drugs in any way. I do not hang out on pallets of cash, uh, <laughs> but it was a good way to have, you know, some dirt and generate cash. And so then built one, what's called an express car wash, which has become all the rage in 05. So I had a two unit car wash kind of side business, if you will. So then I kept coming back to one of my favorite Steve Jobisms is it's hard to get people to change behavior and to do so you have to give them something that you can be 10 times better at. So another way of thinking about that is like, what's an experience that's so bad that it should be easy to make it better. So you start thinking about that. Most service experiences are like this. If you have a house and you ever have an HVAC plumber, electrician, terrible service experiences compared to like this Uber bar of I'm on an app. I have total visibility and transparency. I digitally pay. I, as the consumer, have the power in the equation versus just like e-commerce services kind of stink. Uh, going to the drugstore, that, that's terrible. But then I kept coming back to car care and I started researching. And as an industry, car care has really, really low net promoter scores. And that's what started to get me excited. And then as I've dug into it, one thing I didn't realize is uh, women especially hate the existing car care experience. And at Spiffy, we over-index on, on women. We're 65% female. I think for the audience listening, right, net promoter score, you're just referring to, you know, would you recommend this to a friend, right? Essentially, yeah. like, what's the customer experience like for, for everyday consumers? Yeah, just put a number on it. And so you rate one to 10, and then there's this, um, you go through this math, and there's attractors and detractors and neutrals. You take the neutrals out, and you're left with the score. And in the e-commerce world, we, we hang out kind of, uh, you and I could open a Shopify store. You could open up a, a CDG t-shirt store and you would get a net promoter score of 40. And then if you worked hard, you could get up to 80. Uh, but it's hard, hard to do worse than 40. Then I started researching, um, especially some of the, the really poor scores in our industry, which would be the quick loop places. And they're in the minus 80 range. Um, so people despise those, those service experiences. To the point the where quick lubes, really, yeah. One in particular, I, I won't really uh, throw names out there, but Jiffy Lube. And you know what happened there is they do a lot of things that are wrong in the car service industry. They have a bait and switch pricing, then they have what I would call opt out upsells. So they love to get the car on a lift and then talk to someone you know, about a serious problem with the car, and then make it almost hard to say no to that. You know, you feel they they kind of put you in a spot to try to upsell you things, and that results in really negative net promoter scores. 
So as we were researching this, a company launched in Silicon Valley called Cherry, and it was going to be Uber for car wash. And we're like, oh crap, someone's kind of thinking about this already. What are we going to do? And it turns out it's, uh, it's actually probably the best thing that could have happened to us. And I'll explain why. So they launched and they replicated the Uber model, which means they would literally have, they had like a $20 price point and a $30 price point, which is car wash operators were like, that's kind of weird. Um, and they only did the outside of the car, which was another fail. And then they did 1099 labor. So it was a great app experience. So you would, you would get a washer to come to your house, but they were just totally would show up in their own car and they would literally take a bucket and sponge out of the trunk and come and say, Hey, CGG, I'm here to wash your car. Can I come in and get some water or use a hose out here? Um, and then they would just wash your car in your driveway. Good, good. So it was a very weird experience if you think about it. Well, that company burned through all their venture capital. And then they got Aqua hired by Lyft. The CEO went to work for Uber. And then he started a transportation company called Bird. And that is Travis, not Kalonic, but I can never remember his last name. It's long. But ever since then, we haven't been able to raise capital out of Silicon Valley because everyone says Travis tried this and couldn't get it to work. Therefore, almost anyone won't be able to. So we haven't faced a well-funded Silicon Valley competitor because Travis failed at this. Um, thank goodness. So that, that's been a huge win for us. How's that impacted your funding? I can imagine you're speaking with investors. This is a very physical world business. Yeah. What has that been like? If I created, if you and I whiteboarded a company that would be one of the hardest ones to fund, we would come up with Spiffy. So your intuition on that is, is spot on. So we have everything venture capitalists hate. We have everything venture capitalists hate. That's a great line. Yes. Should, you should promote that. Yeah, no, uh, it wasn't by design. Front page of, of your deck. Yeah. I try to lead with some of these things because I want to get to a fast no because I don't want to waste everyone's time. It swung the other way though. So I'll, I'll say that. So there is a, a, there's light at the end of the tunnel here. So, you know, number one, as you have inferred are we, we decided early on, and this is an Amazonism. And if we really want to own this customer experience, we're going to try to be the Starbucks of car care. We're trying to provide a premium service here. And, uh, this comes from my e-commerce world In e-commerce, there's this really well-documented consumer behavior of the value oriented consumer and the convenience oriented consumer. You, uh, my understanding is your dealership is prime subprime. I hear you talk on the podcast about how your customers, they care about that monthly nut that they're going to be paying. That's a value-oriented consumer and they're great. And that is a great audience to sell to. And in the retail world, the companies that are growing sell to them. Uh, so wholesale clubs, dollar clubs, and those type of folks cater to the value-oriented consumer. But on the other side of the coin is the convenience-oriented consumer. And they will pay, they care about money, but they will always trade dollars for mm -hmm. convenience because they're busy. Yep. They may have, you know, a business or two, a side hustle being an internet celebrity like you, they will always kind of trade off time. And so we decided early on to unapologetically go for that as a customer. And that's because we know from the e-commerce world that that is a great customer to go for. If you, if you can pick one of those two, um, you know, the convenience oriented consumer uh, is always going to be my choice because you can get better margins and they're a lot easier to deal with. And what. So uh, because of that, you know, we can't say to you, hey, CDG, we're going to be this premium offering. Here's Joe's Car Care LLC. We're really a marketplace. We hope they take care of you, but if they don't, call them, not us. You have to create a, you have to create a product and stand by it. And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. So our technicians are employees. They are W-2. They, we, they're hourly and they make anywhere from 15 to $20 an hour. Would you go up? How do you hire technicians? How do you do this, right? It's like super yeah. tough in the industry. Everyone's struggling to hire technicians. How do you do it? Yeah. So first and, of all, and one more thing, let me add there, right? Like 
if I'm a technician, from my experience, and I'm not a technician, right? Like I don't want to deal with people. I want to fix cars. I want to turn wrenches. So that's, I think, the first thing that came to my mind, having, you know, hire technicians. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the this is where being from outside the industry is beneficial. We The first thing we decided was this is not going to work with ASE certified mechanics. Um, they're too expensive. And if you go to a quick lube place or a car wash, they don't hire ASE certified mechanics. So, so that's the key is we're not hiring certified mechanics. So they're technicians and we're, you know, we've been at this since 2014. So where we are now, we, there's been many iterations is we've gotten very good at it. Yeah, and what we found is our best technicians don't come from the industry. They pick up a lot of bad habits in the industry, like from Jiffy Loop. They're constantly trying to upsell the customer aggressively. We're like, no, that's not our shtick. Don't, you know, we stop doing that. And they just can't. We get our technicians out of other places. So we get them out of warehouse jobs and fast food where there's these, um, you know, so they're, they're typically high school educated. Um, and many of them are people of color and something has happened in their life where they're kind of like, I need to actually go start earning and I want to have a career. That's where the, we're trying to, that's what Starbucks does for a lot of people with their barista program. We're trying to do that in the car care world. So our, our promise to them is we're going to have this ladder come in at the bottom rung of that ladder as a wash tech, and we're going to train you how to do all this stuff. So we, we self-train all the technicians. Wow. And so what's yep. that process like? I mean, do people care that they're not certified? And to be clear, I'm speaking of someone who's hired plenty of, you know, quote unquote, not certified techs who were super professional, incredible technicians. They just didn't have that whatever certification, whatever, whichever yeah. one it may be. So do people care? Do you find that? Especially your consumers, you mentioned convenience consumers that have more options potentially. Yeah. The consumers don't care because at the consumer level, the services we're providing are car wash, oil change, and tires. And you don't have to be ASE certified. You know, none of that is touching the internal car systems or any of those kinds of things. Um, now today, uh, we have a big fleet component and for certain things they do care. And we do have ASE certified techs for that. Um, but it's kind of a pyramid. So we have 600 technicians, if, if you can believe that. Um, and at the top of that pyramid, we have 50 certified mechanics. And then in the middle, they work with folks that are kind of between that have some, you know, they're on their way to certification or they've previously been certified and just don't have the current paper. And then the bulk of our technician base is doing these high value, high frequency, lower skilled services, wash, oil, tires. So what are the top services? So do you, do you want to do three services? Is that, do you focus on three things? For consumer, we do, we do brakes as well. Um, and then, um, you know, for our fleet customers, we do a lot of other services. If you looked at a pie chart of our services, it's pretty evenly split in four buckets. Number one, wash, which is largely on the consumer side. We do some fleet wash, but, but it's probably 80% consumer. Oil change, uh, that leans heavy fleet. And then tires, which is uh, spread pretty evenly across consumer and fleet. And then a 25% of other. And this is where we're now, we're digging deep into this fleet business. And I'll give you the backstory on how we got here. But we have fleets asking us, um, we work with the rental car fleets. And some of them are asking us, you guys have done such a good job with X, Y, and Z. Could you run a reconditioning center for us? Um, so we're starting to get into reconditioning. Um, we have some of our, um, our fleets, we work a lot with the Amazon fleet, which is called Amazon DSPs, delivery service professionals, and they're 1099, but they're 1099 companies, not just individuals. And we work with them and we do, you know, our job there is to make sure this is third shift. So we come in at like 8 PM and work till, um, you know, the wee hours of the morning. 
our job is to make sure when that van goes to load out, load out the next day, it's pristine and can't be grounded um, by Amazon. So we do anything it takes to do that. So there's where we will have a lot of mechanics um, working. So that's that, that other 25% is this long tail of other things we mm-hmm. do that does get into yeah. more PDR, um, we'll fix your mirrors, fix trim, light body work, um, heavier repairs. How do you, like tactically speaking, right? Do you carry all these parts in the truck? Like if I need tires and brakes, but you don't know that yet, you haven't seen my car yet. How do you do this? Yeah. So this is where, um, you know, you, you mentioned that this is a low tech business. That's the head fake. This is a high tech business that looks like a low tech business. Amazon's the same thing, right? You're kind of like, well, Amazon's just moving packages around and people driving. And that's true, but it would never work if you didn't have an AI brain behind the scenes, optimizing all that at Amazon. That's what we're building is that software infrastructure to do this in an, in an economical, scalable way. So we've had to build all that. It'll probably blow your mind to know we have over 30 engineers on staff at Spiffy building software all the time. So, uh, for example, we know um, we can use predictive analytics and we forward stock uh, all the things most Amazon vehicles need. So that, that's an easy one. But for the consumer, we, we have chosen not to get into that repair world for this very reason. Um, a lot of companies we compete with have kind of died on those rocks um, because it is super hard. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. So, yeah. so when it comes to the fleets, you sort of stock, you know, what you can beforehand and you, but Yeah. Some stuff's easy. So oil change is easy if you, um, and again, I'm from outside the industry. So this was kind of new to me. We can stock, I think it's 85 filters and that gives us like 90% of the cars. Um, you know, there'll be like, you know, a random Range Rover or something, yeah. something that we have to order. But they'll, now we're integrated in with all the, you know, the parts ordering systems. So we can look and see, okay, uh, we need that Range Rover thing for a service Friday. It's at the auto zone. We're going to have it. We always have a central location in all of our locations. So we're going to have that sent to, um, you know, to the warehouse with, you know, and it's going to say, you know, truck 182. Uh, on there so that it gets preloaded on. That's the kind of thing the software is doing is preloading. Yeah. So there's stuff you do know part-wise and there's stuff you don't. Um, the stuff you don't know, um, so like tires, for example, um, there's a really good, uh, you probably know this again, I'm new to this world. The The tire infrastructure is really robust. So we are integrated with all the major distributors and then some tier twos. So we can look into that and see, number one, for consumer, yeah. we offer a tire that's in stock, right? This is always the thing that drives me crazy about service experiences. They're always like, uh, I had this other day, like guys like, uh, what garage door do you want? And I was like, how about this one? Oh, I don't have it. And I'm like, well, why'd you offer it? Uh, I, you know, I didn't know what I had or didn't have. It's like, how do you, how do you not know what you don't have? So we only show what's available and then we order it, get it to the warehouse and then goes on the service. So when you do tires with us, we always have a two or three day window there so we can deliver on that, that excellent customer experience of having the right product to put on your vehicle. You know, it's funny. You mentioned reconditioning center, but where I learned, where I learned a lot about this topic was, uh, actually former drive time and Carvana employees. They've been building this out for 20 years, way before Carvana drive time. And they've really built some robust processes and just great systems. And so a lot of the reconditioning we've done was reverse engineering their entire process. And it was sort of a cheat sheet. You know, so when you're a used car dealer, you need to get these cars to the front line as quickly and efficiently as possible. They've done, a, I think they've done a really great job, as has CarMax. But I know CarMax, whereas Carvana, more drive time for, you know, very long time, well over a decade, has been operating with a centralized reconditioning centers. CarMax did have this a bit more decentralized. And now I think maybe they have like a hybrid format. So 
just interesting how that's evolved. But there's no doubt about it that, you know, centralized reconditioning center uh, definitely has its benefits from, you know, getting a car reconditioned as efficiently as possible. A lot of this is fun because you can apply computer science-y stuff to it. So in computer science, we spend a lot of time thinking of how do you parallelize a problem? So, you know, how do you, uh, you know, you can take a math formula and if you could break it into parts that you could run simultaneously and then add two things at the end, that's good because it can run on multiple CPUs and things like that. But there's certain things that are inherently linear. Uh, there's a famous um, uh, author in computer science. He said, nine women can't make a baby in a month. So there, there's, there's certain things you can't, you know, you can't break down. Building a company <laughs> like is kind of like that. You, I, you, you probably know that. It's like, it's a very linear thing because you got to kind of like go through these failure cycles and learn. It's hard to do that in parallel. But we found, um, you know, if we apply that mindset to car care, there's a lot of things we can do. For example, you'll like this. A lot of times uh, for our rental car partners, we'll, we will do a high volume oil capability. So we have a specialized van that we've built that can change the oil on six cars in an hour, which how this changed oil on six cars in one hour. Yeah. Walk uh, me through that. Is that magic? So here's the magic. We, it's a parallel problem. So what we do is number one, uh, we vacuum the oil. So, uh, we found that's much more efficient and a better system. Interesting. So we can, we, this, this vehicle has the technology to be able to vacuum four simultaneously and fill two. So what we do is we line up the cars and then we put our van between, we roll out the doors and all these hoses come out. It's like an octopus. Oh, and, I see what you're saying. Yep. And we're doing, you know, if that. we did it linearly, it would take 30 minutes per, but we are doing it all in parallel and able to change the oil on six vehicles in an hour. So that's an example of this breaking a problem down into its component parts and then it get a lot more unit economics out of the system. Let's get to the brass tacks, right? I want to talk right. about some financials here. How do you make money? So we are not a marketplace. So our revenue is our revenue. It's not a gross net thing, which I'm very familiar with from the e-commerce world. Um, so uh, if we do, uh, so so one way to look at it is, uh, you know, looking at the services that we offer. So if you look at a car wash, um, our car washes start at uh, $59 for what's called a spiffy, um, which is a, uh, it's a hand wash inside and out and uh, no wax. And then we have one up from there is uh Spiffy and Shine, which adds a wax. Then we have an awesome and a totally awesome detail. Um, so it ranges from $59 to about $300, depending on the size of your vehicle. Uh, one thing that blows the mind of car wash people is our average ticket is $125 for a car wash. Very high. Relatively That's the speaking. blend of those things. Um, the convenience-oriented mm -hmm. consumer, a lot. the one, number one thing people say when they find us is, I love this. I haven't washed my car in three years. And when they say that, we're like, well, I don't think the the small package is going to be good for you. You need to kind of get it. You need to start with, let's get you kind of back up to where you need to be with a detail. Yeah. So we sell a lot of details. Um, and uh, so, so a common thing is people start with a detail and then they'll maintain with the spiffy, spiffy and shine. The detail includes shampooing a car. You know, we take the seats out, the carpets and clean them and all this kind of jazz. Um, and then light scratch removal as well. Uh, so if you take that $125, um, yeah, break that down. Can, yeah. So, so then, you know, we, uh, we have, we have designed this for, and if you look at premium service brands, uh, we make a 50% margin, five zero. Got it. So our, our cost on that 125 wash are going to be about $60. And how much of that is labor? Oh, that is the lion's share. So like 50 is labor, nine is the van. Um, and then, and this is on an allocated basis, if you will. And then the rest is the other parts, which would be a little bit of gas, some water, some chemicals and those kinds of things. They're, they're pretty mm -hmm. minor in, in the. You know, what we would call non, non-labor cogs on a car wash is, you know, very, very low. Uh, now on an oil change, it's higher, 
but we're wildly efficient um, on that. And so the labor is actually a lot lower on an oil change than a wash. So it, it ends up being the same margin. I think that 125 is high for car wash, but it's low for a detail, you know, yeah. like a detail. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not getting a, a real detail at 125 nowadays on any car. That's that. That's the average, you know, so it's this, the menu, that's what's kind of comes out as consumers pick from the menu that, that 125. What about your funding? How much money have you raised? We've raised about 90 million. Mm-hmm. And what's that, what's that been equity debt? How are you, how have you funded your company? Uh, equity. Yep. So we're venture backed. Um, we have, uh, you know, our series A was led by Tribeca Ventures out of the Tribeca, New York. Um, they, uh, they're interesting being in New York, they're kind of in ad tech for a while. And then they took a flyer on this, uh, startup called ACV, um, that you may know. Oh yeah. And that did really, really well for them. And then they were kind of like, uh, I knew one of the guys there and he's like, you're doing something in auto, right? And I was explaining what I do. He's like, well, we did so well with this. We'll take a, we'll take a flyer on this, this crazy spiffy idea. And then we just added, uh, this company in Princeton called Edison. That's our growth, um, investor. Yeah. I've heard of them. Love that. Yep. Yeah. So it seems like you guys are well-funded. I mean, what's next for the company? What are you going to use all this capital for? So we, we think about, uh, and just to give you an idea, we're at about a 70 million run rate. We just crossed 70, seven zero. So, you know, we think 70 million run rate. So, so what are you doing monthly in revenue? What does that break down to? Just north of five. Got it. And then can you share what you're burning? We, in aggregate, our cities are cash flow positive. So, you know, the way we think about positive contribution. Yeah. So all of our cities have a very positive contribution and they cover, um, a little bit more than half of the, the platform, which is the, you know, the part that's building out the cities and launching them and all the other services and stuff. Yeah. So that's next for us is get to EBITDA positive and then cash flow positive. When you launch a city, how quickly does that city become profitable? Yeah. So when we first started, we, we were largely a consumer company and on the consumer side, we have residential and then we also have office park. And that was a huge thing we learned early on is these office parks are a great place to go do services because once you have vans and people, you want to get what I call density of service. You want to, you know, you want to do as, you know, as many services per trip as possible, whereas residential tends to be one, one trip, one service, uh, office park can be one to five, maybe one to 10. So when we first started, it would take about $2 million for a city to get to profitability. And then it would pay back in 18 months. Then we discovered fleet and that has been a game changer for us. So we only open cities now if we've got a large fleet that's committed to a pretty big commitment for us. Um, seems like it's a huge accelerant. Yeah. Yeah. So when we open a city and we actually haven't opened a city in about a year and a half because we've got so much business where we are, we haven't needed to. We're in 25 markets and our goal is to get to 40 of the largest markets in the U.S. So so we've paused for a while, but let's say we were going to open Kansas City or, or something like that. Um, yeah, what we do is we now have 14 f- national fleet relationships. So we would start and we would get to hundred K a month and break even in under six months using our fleet, our national fleet accounts. So this is folks like the usual suspects and rental car, uh, which would be enterprise, Hertz, Avis, uh, six Fox, et cetera. Um, U-Haul, um, and then we work with, we do a lot of business with Turo and the folks that get around kind of like what I call next generation fleets or vehicle 2.0 fleets. Um, and then we, I mentioned Amazon, uh, and their whole thing, FedEx, and then we have a lot of corporate fleets. We have government fleets. So we would start with that. We do a lot of work with Carvana. And, um, so we would start there and then get the city up pretty quickly to about a million, two million run rate. And then we are layering consumer. So that, that's, that's something we've learned over time is start with fleet first, um, get it scaled up, get your, 
get your cadence going, you know, get like 10, 20 vans in the market operating and then layering consumer. Do you know what, what's your average market penetration per market? That's an interesting question. So we used to answer this question. So uh, our home market is Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, which is kind of a lot of people in the internet world. Um, City Search was launched here, if you remember City Search. And are you from North Carolina? I am. Uh, well, I'm from South Carolina, but uh, I'm coming to you live from Durham. You know, this area has a million people and they look, they're a really good demographic slice. And then they over-index on college educated and a little bit higher income than the population of the U.S. But it's a really good market um, to test things out. And because it's a million people, we just crossed a, a 3 million run rate here. And we always said, we think per capita, we could get to $3 per person. So we just got there. And I now think that we're being conservative on that. And with the addition of tires and some other things, I, I think we could get to $6. So I, th I think, let's say a Raleigh, our home market, we're maybe at like 50% where we want to be. Um, everywhere else, we're like sub 10%. What do you know? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you, you're very obviously very close to the consumer here when it comes to auto repair, but do you know anything about the consumer uh, specifically with respect to like auto repair behavior, something interesting or something that you've noticed just having been in this business now for a good amount of time? Yeah. And this kind of, you know, you guys in the car world throw around this 12.2 year um, thing, um, which is fine. The what, what, what? The 12.2 what? The average age of a car is 12.2 years or 12.5 ah, or whatever it is. Yeah. Got it. So, uh, and our customer doesn't have their car that long. Um, so I think, the, I think this is that value and that convenience rate. Yes. I think the convenience rate consumer keeps their car less than no, like kind of five years max, so three to five years. Yeah. So our customers, people always ask me, why aren't you doing more repair for your customers? And they're not really asking for it. And when we, you know, we're touching 3000 cars a day. So we have a lot of data on this. And, you know, what we're seeing is our customer is not um, really needing repair. You know, they, the car is usually under 80,000 miles. Um, and then when it gets up towards that range, they're swapping them out. And yeah, I think that is our customer. And a lot of people think, uh, then they kind of assume, well, you're only dealing with affluent. So you must be washing BMWs and exotics. We, we do some of that, but our customer is driving a, a you know, a sports utility vehicle, kind of a mini SUV and largely a woman. And a lot of them are, our number one segment is millennial females. And they're just busy. They want their car to work. They want it to be nice. They don't have to have the fanciest. It could be a Honda Pilot or something like that. Um, they just want it to work and be clean and not be a hassle in their life. Um, they don't want the car to come between them and what they're trying to do. So therefore, they have all kind of, you know, a little, uh, I'm the same way, a little signal starts going off in my head when uh, a vehicle gets kind of up around 80,000, kind of like, I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be a timing belt, a transmission <laughs> thing, a sensor. This thing's about to become, uh, you know, more of a liability than a benefit to my life. I need to kind of think. Yeah. So, so I think that's no, something I mean, that we I respect. It. I think, yeah, you, you know, your defined audience and it's uh, yeah. very different from what I've experienced for sure. Um, and I think it's very different from the majority of the U S but it's, uh, it's a great audience. And if you can, like you said, you know, properly, you know, um, offer the right type of value for that audience and it works. Yeah. I, I want to go, I want to go a bit more macro. I think I'm curious to know, and I'm sure you get these questions from investors, but like, where is auto repair headed in your head? I mean, clearly there's been tons of tailwinds here. Car prices are jacked up. More people are holding onto their vehicles for longer than ever. How do you see auto repair playing out over the next five, 10 years? How do you, and how do you see that impacting your business and growth? Yeah. So I'll, I'll do top down and then we can do bottoms up. So top down, sure. here's what, here's why I get excited about what we're doing at Spiffy. I come from the e-commerce world and e-commerce was in this, you know, $5 trillion retail industry. 
And Amazon came in and now has built $500 billion revenue business. Um, it's global, but if we, you can chop it in half for the US. So 20% of retail has moved online and digital. So 20% mm -hmm. of everything we buy now is digital. And you've all seen the chart of, you know, this kind of progression and accelerated during COVID. Um, I think that happens in car care. Um, and I think it happens faster. And if it does, in you know, the global industry is 800 billion a year. And in the US, it's 200 billion. So 20% of that is 40 billion. So this is a $40 billion kind of opportunity we're chasing uh, at Spiffy. And if we can- So you think 40 billion is gonna be mobile? Yeah. Why? Because uh, the consumer experience is 10 times better. And if you really, the companies that differentiate themselves will have a better customer experience. So we've seen that happen um, over and over and over again in the e-commerce world, and it will play out again here. It, I believe mobile service will be table stakes. If you don't offer it, it'll be weird. What do you think about that deal? AutoNation bought RepairSmith, which is, you know, mobile auto repair. I think there's some nuances. It's different from Spiffy in that sense. But what do you think yeah. about that deal? I think it was a great deal. So it was a good comp for us. So it was a $200 million deal. They're a lot smaller than we are. So it was a really good multiple for the industry. And I think it's interesting to have, you know, one of the, you know this better than I do, but are they the top, the largest public or one of the top public auto dealers saying this is important and strategic to us. And, is you there, know, in their statements, they said, you know, um, number one, we're going to bake it into F&I. So I think it gets baked into F&I where you're buying a car and you have some options. You can have no maintenance program. You can have a come to us maintenance program or a we come to you. And I think you'll be surprised how many consumers choose that and they, were, they will be willing to pay considerably more for it. You just mentioned a very important thing, which is that the subprime consumer, they're limited by how much F&I they can even purchase, right? Banks will lend them after a certain point, maybe a couple thousand in backend, quote unquote, which is almost like they have these, imagine it as a credit, you're a kid at Chuck E. Cheese's, <laughs> you have 10 tokens. That's what you can use to play, right? <laughs> yeah. Now kind of parlay that to modern day, you know, subprime consumer. If a lender approves you and you have a certain amount that they can uh, sort of qualify for backend products, they can only buy up to a certain amount in warranty. So I think another really important point here is that it makes even more sense for this type of product to be targeted towards a, you know, kind of mid to higher end consumer because they they will have more budget that they're able to work with. And you can now add this on top of a, you know, say a warranty or, or a vehicle service contractor or whatever other products that they would normally buy, right? The call it the quote unquote table stakes products. You can add that on top of it. Whereas I don't think that's as a viable with a kind of sub or, you know, mid prime consumer as much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. You know, admittedly, every customer isn't ours. Now, you know, the thing we see is people, it's like Starbucks. Like I go to Starbucks all the time and, you know, every other time you go in there and it's someone's first time at a Starbucks, they're like, what do you call a large? And you, you can tell that they're, you know, they're trading up. They're kind of having the one-off yeah. experience. So the value oriented consumer will pop in and do this. And, you know, the other thing is, I don't know if you saw it, but Ford is now really strongly encouraging their dealers to do mobile service and they're providing some of them with their van. So what's happening is we are starting to do this as well. So we have started licensing our software and our van platform out to dealerships and we call that digital servicing. That's interesting. Yeah. So you could, um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be an F&I. It could be a loyalty thing. So there could be a, hey, come buy a car from me and you get a wash a year as being a loyal customer at my dealership. Um, I think that would be great for the subprime customer. They're hard to build brand loyalty with, but they love free stuff. So that could be a way to do it. Um, Who doesn't? But yeah. So 
you know, we've got six dealers in, in kind of an early access program and we're having some really interesting data points. The one that, that I found interesting is one of our dealers is running two vans just doing recall work. And uh, you know this better than I do, but the, the OEMs want you to go do this recall work and they'll pay handsomely for it. But, you know, they send all this, these cards to consumers and say, come in for recall and the consumers ignore it because it's super inconvenient. And now you're saying, hey, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what if we came to you? And consumers are like, oh, if you're going to come to me, sure, I'll do that. And then the dealers are funding several vans just doing that. But yeah, we're seeing a lot of really interesting things we're learning from the dealer community as we offer this as a service. And they do it under their brand. Um, so they would offer it under their family name, you know, uh, which was what we recommend is if you're going to go build loyalty with consumer, do it at your brand level. Mm -hmm. You know, pull the OEM into it, you know, have the logos on there, but, you know, talk about, you know, whatever it is, Rick Hendrick or whatever, um, you know, your brand is, put that front and center and build that loyalty with the consumer that you're now coming to them and providing the service. Mm -hmm. So when you're licensing, what are you actually licensing to the dealer? So they get our, they get our software, so they can use our software to manage it. Um, and we're integrating in with the DMSs. We've got two of those done and they're getting our van platform. So we have spent a lot of time figuring out how to get the van um, perfect for tires. And then we have a combo van, which is oil and wash. So there's that. And then the last one is kind of our know-how. So we go in and train them on how to do this. Um, and what we found, this is what I found at e-commerce. If um, brick and mortar stores were inherently bad at e-commerce, because if you mm -hmm. spend all day in the four walls of a building, everything you think about is building oriented. You're, you're, that whole mindset um, is pervasive. So a lot of the folks that come to us have gone through a failure cycle. They've tried a mobile program and can't get it to work. And we're, we're saying, look, here's the, here's the recipe. Um, here's, we know this works. We, we were doing this, you know, 70 million and, and making it profitable. We know how it works. We know how to make it profitable and how to, you know, our net promoter score is north of 80. We know how to delight customers. Here's how to do it. So it's the recipe and the ingredients. Do you service EVs? We do. Yeah. EVs. Uh, I've been driving a Tesla since 2012. So I've been living the EV lifestyle for, for longer than most. Uh, it was like one of the first two in North Carolina that used to have to fly wow. people in to work on it. It was fun. And uh, we're excited about EVs because uh, the dirty secret of EVs is once you take the energy cost out, is they're actually more expensive done. And it's because of the tires. Uh, I went through my first set of tires at 12,000 miles. And then now um, I can get them to like 20,000. But the vehicles are much heavier and they're super torquey, as you know. And uh, you go through tires much, much faster than, than anyone is used to. And those How much are faster? Like, give me like a rough reference. About 20,000 miles versus 30 to 40. So about twice as fast. Wow. Yeah. So you're saying that's ultimately a boon for your business. It, yeah. The tire guys are working on making it better, but there's physics problems of rubber. The harder you make the rubber so it doesn't wear, the worse the ride. So I don't think they're going to be able to solve that. So the other thing we've noticed is if we look at a cohort of EVs versus ICEs in our yeah. data, consumer, um, the EV owners wash two times more a year. Um, we get about two washes per customer a year. Our EVs do four a year. And as an EV driver, what happens is I don't go to gas stations. Um, if I want a snack or something, it's like on the way I may pull into one, but I rarely go to gas stations because you charge at home every night. Um, a lot of people don't, don't grok that either. So you're not really going to gas stations at all, uh, except on lo long road trips, um, which are pretty rare for anybody. 
So mm-hmm. I don't have that, you know, I'm at the sheets of the Wawa. I'm going to pull around through the tunnel car wash just to give it kind of a clean, ex- quick exterior. So, so you also, you're not forking out dollars out of your wallet every week for your car. So it feels like you have extra money to spend on your car. And I think that's what's driving mm-hmm. that behavior. I think the most basic question I haven't asked you is what markets do you serve? So we're only in the United States and we're in 25 markets. And if you kind of say, if you go Philadelphia down to DC, you pick up the Carolinas, so Raleigh, Charlotte, then you go to Atlanta, then Florida, we're huge in Florida, pretty much have every city in Florida covered. And then Texas, we've got all the large markets covered and then kind of back up the other side of the coast all the way up to Seattle. So we're in 25 of the larger metros and kind of like that sunbelt kind of a U-shape right now. Um, so, you know, we haven't- Why that, sunbelt? Or is that like coincidental or, cause I'm thinking the first well, thing that comes we to wash my- cars. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, you go to the Northeast or Northwest or whatever, you have some snow, uh, you know, salt, you gotta get car wash, you know, it's very inconvenient. What do you think about yeah. that? It's harder to operate in those markets because of congestion, um, tight working environments, and the cold. Um, it's hard to get. We, we, Fair enough. We can do it, and we have solutions for all this. Um, it's just if you have, you know, if you're going to climb a tree to get some fruit, why not start at the yeah. easy stuff or work your way up? So it's easier, easier pickings for us. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, but we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm not worried. I mean, listen, very, very impressive. I got to tell you, when I think of such a logistically intensive business, man, I don't know, being honest, I don't know if I would have bet on you early on. And look, I don't know your past experiences very intimately. And so you've obviously done some great things. So I don't say that as a, obviously early on, you know, you've really bet on people, but I think it's very impressive the scale that you've already gotten this to, um, and doing it with positive, you know, market contribution. That's, uh, that's not an easy feat, man. Thanks. Yeah. My other favorite Jeff Bezosism is, um, the reason we solve hard problems is it's a competitive mode. It absolutely is. Yeah. So yeah, the, yeah, it, it's the most fun software yeah, I've ever built because it's got a hard, a, a real world component to it. Um, we've gotten into some devices, uh, in the van, we can actually look in the van and see how much water's in there and how much oil and stuff. Um, so we're using IOT and we're doing a lot of really cool stuff in this kind of marriage of technology and trying to solve this problem. Yeah. Because we're, we're doing it at scale. We can make these investments and things no one would ever really think to do. It would be crazy for a two person or a single dealer to do this (laughs) or anything like that, but we can do it because we're doing it across 300 vans and 600 technicians. And hopefully that's going to keep doubling. I think you could do some badass stuff with the logo, man. The penguin. I would love to see a penguin mascot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I'll send you some, uh, I'll send you some uh, little, little plushies there. I love it. Scott, uh, where can people learn more about Spiffy about you? Yeah. So Spiffy's website, uh, is getspiffy.com, G-E-T-S-P-I-F-F-Y. Uh, and then, uh, we're on the app. Who owns Spiffy? Who owns Spiffy.com then? This one dude that started a company called Spiffy Software, uh, and he is not selling the URL. He's not uh, selling yet. it. So we'll see. Well, uh, yeah, when we get Ruben money. We'll, we'll buy it. And <laughs> Then, uh, on LinkedIn, I, I do pontificate about startups and, uh, I leave the industry pontification to you. I'm uh, Scott Wingo, Scott with one T and I'm also on Twitter now called X. Uh, it has been funny to watch you interact with the Elon. Uh, that's been, I'm a huge Elon geek. So, uh, you know, that, that was awesome to watch you guys chatting there. Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a cool experience and, um, just having, you know, Having that interaction on on Twitter or X now has definitely amplified the platform, which has been awesome. What's your what's your overall take on Twitter's rebrand? How do you feel about that? 
So I have a long history. I was, I remember PayPal was early partner of Channel Advisor. Um, so, you know, when they merged with X, it was an online bank. And there's something to, in the, from the e-commerce world in China, they have these apps that do everything, uh, Weibo and, and whatnot. I wouldn't count him out. I, I, I think everyone thinks he's crazy, and, but I've heard that story like four times now, and he, he has always won, so I would not bet against him. Mm -hmm. So I, I think he's going to make it work. Awesome. Scott, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. I love, I love what you guys are doing. We'll definitely be uh, checking in on your progress and seeing how you continue expanding. But, you know, this has been very insightful and uh, I appreciate you making, you know, coming onto the pod. Yeah. Thanks for having me and really appreciate it. And good luck and congrats on all your success building your brand. Appreciate it, Scott. Talk soon. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.